When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before, with hospital-grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask, no Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doingourpart. Before two-thirds of the world entered lockdown, and what seemed like endless days of self-isolation ahead of us, we were very much in the throes of a climate justice struggle involving young people, climate activists, governments, and the fossil fuel industry. Now much of the climate movement is online. It's become a tough space to navigate because most people are dealing with the pressing problems of sheer survival at the moment. We are, after all, in the midst of a global economic and health crisis. While the pandemic has turned most of our lives and world upside down, one thing that hasn't changed and pursues is the climate crisis. Environmental devastation on a scale yet unimaginable is a parallel thread running alongside everything, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Slowly, countries are beginning to ease their lockdowns. We're starting to talk about what reopening the economy looks like without a vaccine. As we continue to discuss solutions for a reformed world post-COVID-19, in the fourth UBI episode, I am so excited to have Scott Santons join me to talk about how an unconditional basic income can help in mitigating the climate crisis. Scott Santons is the guy on UBI and is a full-time UBI advocate championing the cause since 2013. Scott, thanks so much for joining me on the Nth Dimension today. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me here. So, Scott, it's been pretty much unequivocally established that there are a lot of cracks in our social, political fabric systems around the world, and these foundations need to be looked at seriously. And it's also been unequivocally established that the climate crisis will unleash upon us similar infectious diseases. We're going to face a lot of food shortages, a lot of inner country migration, and that will necessarily lead to a lot of disarray around the world, kind of like the one we're facing right now. So I just want to start off with reading something out to you and we'll take it from there. So I read a BBC story which said that by 2070, more than 3 billion people in the world will be living in places where with quote unquote near unlivable temperatures unless we tackle greenhouse gas emissions head on. And the earth is going to get warmer even if we stick to our three degrees Celsius target. So after reading that, I, I tweeted, even at the end of the pandemic, we will be in a grave state of crisis. We need to desperately change the way we live, work, and consume. Corporations need to stop eyeing endless profits and produce sustainable smaller amounts. To this, my friend Devika, shout out to you Devika, responded, yes, but how? I asked not to proffer unhelpful rhetoric, but because I have been wondering about this myself, what's in it for big businesses? Being sustainable is expensive, slow, and non-profitable. How do we begin to reimagine economics so that it works for everyone? And I think this is sort of the crux of what I want to get at today. So Scott, in your opinion, what do you think are the main root causes that have led to environmental devastation? And how do you think that an unconditional basic income will address the root causes and not just the symptoms? Yeah, I, I think one of the root causes is essentially, uh, you know, chasing the almighty dollar in order to survive. Like we set up a system where everyone needs to scratch and claw their way in order to earn enough money to live. And in order to do that, like anything is on the table. Um, there are just so many things that we do that we don't necessarily need to do and we can even feel a kind of um, immorality or something behind a lot of the things that we do as well, but we feel that we have to do them. And it's not only about, say, um, achieving enough that you need to live, uh, but it's also this rampant and chronic stress of insecurity that exists behind not knowing if even if you have enough to live, that you will continue to receive enough to live. Uh, so in that case, you do a lot of things even extra and beyond that you wouldn't otherwise do. Um, so to give us some like examples of this, um, you know, I think that that 
we we're okay with doing say um, what what David Kraber ha has defined as as bullshit jobs. So, so this is jobs that necessarily don't need to exist, uh, yeah. but they do anyways. And you know, capitalism will say that there is no such thing. That the only thing that exists is stuff that needs to exist uh, because it's providing some kind of important uh, good or service. But at the same time, we've observed that these jobs exist that don't necessarily need to exist. Like there are companies paying people to drive to and from home every day to the office. And what are they doing? Like maybe they're doing four to six hours of like actual work and yet they're there for eight hours. So, you know, then you're, you're a lot of these jobs too, we're even seeing right now that you could be doing them at home. So there's, there's a lot of waste as in people driving to and from places and that's, of course, using up resources that we don't need to use. Um, and they're, let's say they're in these places for eight hours or 10 hours or something a day when um, they really could just do that work, let's say if they need to be there for like four to six hours. So we're using like electricity and things that we don't need that to, to use otherwise. And I think there's just a, a, a lot of this kind of, of wastefulness. And like, as far as they, economics goes there's something called an inferior good and i think that we're kind of infected by these inferior goods where let's say an inferior good is say a really cheap couch you can get from walmart you know and let's say that costs uh five hundred dollars or something it's like a really cheap uh really cheap couch and like a nice couch could cost like $1,500 or something, but like you don't have enough money to buy like that nice couch. So you get like the cheap couch. And then the cheap couch like disintegrates after like a year. <laughs> it like falls apart, it's useless. And it just goes into the trash. And if you would have been able to afford the nice couch, then you would have had that for potentially decades. You know, we would have been, would have been great, you'd have kept it. And so if you extend that, there's a lot of other goods like that. You know, it's like when you, when you buy a cheap shirt and that, uh, you know, wears out quickly and you buy like cheap shoes and those wear out quickly. So those are inferior goods. They exist because people don't, there's a demand for them because people don't have the money to afford the better good, the more durable good. And so then that's part of this too, where I think that we're producing so many things that are just completely wasteful and fall apart because people are not able to afford the more expensive thing. And so then, if, then you, there's also the problem of actually doing those things on purpose. So let's say you create uh, you know, some forms of electronics where it's designed to be you know, useless after two years. So you have to like get an upgrade or whatever. Yeah, wasn't so there a story that came out that Apple had realized that people were not buying their phones as much because they were just lasting too long? Yeah, you're seeing this with phones and uh, like printers is something too that you that you see that with where, you know, it's a, this planned obsolescence where it, these manufacturers want you to keep buying these things instead of like repairing them. That's even a thing too, like the whole right to repair movement where it was, you know, Apple has it at the heart of that too, or like making it illegal to actually, you know, repair your stuff. And so I, I think part of that also ties back into what we were just talking about previously, where, you know, there's an incentive to like, just create that, like that demand, have more and more money. And some of it's greed, but also some of it as these employees, you want those jobs, you want them to continue working, you don't want to like design these things and that would potentially eliminate your job. So there's so much like self-protection going into employment itself and I think part of that is, is, is because of this rampant fear of the unknown, this lack of security. And so I think that, that it, people that tend to think of UBI as, as just like money and just like more money. Um, but it's really this emotional feeling of, of the security that we don't have. And so if you have that security, then it, it, it alters your choices. It, it enables more options and it enables you to make better choices. Um, so that you are able to like buy the more durable good that you actually are uh, turn away jobs that are that you feel are useless or are even hurting the environment. Um, I remember there was a story actually here in, in Louisiana where um, like someone was working for this oil company and they were told by their boss to like dump this this waste like, into the Mississippi River. 
And, you know, that was illegal, of course, uh, but they were told to do it. And the person, you know, said no. And so they were, they were fired. And that was an example of someone actually, you know, being able to say no, even though they knew they're going to lose their job. But imagine so many other people, you know, it was just whoever did that, that that was definitely done by someone else. And they did it because they wanted to keep their job. So just think about how many like environmental kind of situations there are there as well, where people are doing those things that they're dumping that because they feel that they just have to, you know, have that money to live. So I think that we need that like power in order to go against those who would uh, wish us to do those things. And, uh, and then I just want to cover too, that I think it's that there's an economics there, um, of externalities, which is one of the big problems with fossil fuels. And so it's, for those who don't understand an externality, it's a, it's the price of something that isn't actually priced into it. It's a cost that is incurred by everyone else. And so because the cost is incurred by everyone else, then the good itself is cheaper. So when it comes to like gasoline, you know, let's say the price at the pump, maybe, you know, a dollar and 50 cents or something right now, it's super cheap, especially right now. But if you were to calculate in the cost of like, you know, what's the cost of climate change? You know, what is the cost of, of air pollution and, and asthma and, and effect on our health and all these things, then if we calculated all that in, then obviously it should be something like, you know, $5 a gallon or $6 a gallon or $7 a gallon. Like it should be much more expensive than what it is. So if you want like markets to actually work well, then you have to use something called Pagovian taxes uh, because that it, it, it recognizes that there are these externalities and it says that, okay, oil is artificially cheap. So let's actually make it more expensive. We have to actually add that cost ourselves. So that's like a carbon tax is a good example of this Pagovian taxation um, because it is artificially cheap and therefore it makes renewable sources of energy, you know, more expensive. They're not as competitive. Uh, but as soon as you calculate in the actual externalized costs, then suddenly the green choices seem are, are much better options. They're much more competitive in the markets. So one of the challenges of, of, of like a carbon tax itself has been this lack of basic income because the only way to make people better off, you know, is to defray that cost through, you know, the carbon fee and dividend approach is to say that, yes, we're going to make gasoline more expensive. But at the same time, here's money, here's the revenue from this that you can choose to either continue consuming the same amount, or most likely you'll reduce that amount of usage, you're going to find other sources, you're going to find ways to reduce your consumption in order to increase your disposable income. Um, so that's one of the reasons why a carbon tax has never really been um, implemented uh, for the most part. Like Canada actually just did a national kind of uh, tax and dividend approach um, recently. But aside from that, it doesn't really exist in a lot of places. And every time like a carbon tax comes up, you're like, you know, the yellow vest movement, it was all that was very much a, a response against this kind of carbon tax where just stuff gets more expensive. And what do you get out of it? You're already, you know, just trying to survive every month. How are you supposed yeah. to do that? So yeah, as long as people are just trying to survive every month, it, it makes it really difficult to do what we need to do. A lot of thoughts there. Like when you were mentioning the externalities part, in fact, I read this today on Al Jazeera. I think it was written by, I think it was written by Azhar Sukri. Um, you know, I'm sorry if I'm uh, mis <laughs> misrepresenting the article there, but he was actually talking about how the fact that corporations are able to dump into rivers without having to pay to properly get, get rid of their trash, or the fact that they can pollute actually costs the economy. I think he said, again, please don't take me to court on this if you're, if you're ever going to listen to this, other <laughs> something like two to three uh, trillion dollars in GDP. And I know that a lot of the con a lot of the pushback that UBI often gets, like the superficial pushback, is like, where are we going to get the money from? But the reason I also say this is because I think a lot of the conversation around UBI is from the consumer's point of view, and I think you you s spoke about how it gives power back. It's more than just giving money to people, but actually giving them the power to make choices. Yeah. And you know, when you were talking, I was taken to what Hassan Minaj in one of his like earlier stand-up acts was like, if you want a job, go to India because 
everyone there seems to have some kind of job like from a, from a guy standing in the restaurant like pointing towards where the bathroom is someone's like opening your door <laughs> anyways but i think i really i want to i want to push you a bit on the production side of things i think we're seeing through this pandemic that just slowing down in in 7 weeks yeah. slowing down we're seeing fast changes like it i mean i'm not saying that the earth is going to stop getting warmer it is going to it is going to keep getting warmer no matter what at this point but the fact that we can see clearer skies that we are seeing wildlife come out in the streets you know we're seeing so much freshness in our environment in just seven weeks of lockdown so it's just a bit of slowness that's required and i guess giving uh people the power to choose the kind of work they want to do giving them some extra income will give consumers that power but how will it incentivize producers to slow down yeah i mean producers obviously uh respond very much to uh to consumers and you know a, a lot of this is 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 up to us and i i think that you know it, it, this ties into a lot with the automation argument too the fact that we're like slowing down right now and we you know we're kind of living this this life that we who have been talking about automation um have been talking about essentially it's like you know what happens when there's fewer jobs and you know we i i, I like to say that that whereas most people tend to think the, the conversation is around oh what happens when there's half as many jobs in, in 20 years and it, i think the the better way to look at that is well you know if there's half as many jobs that I mean we can all work half as much you know, and then what we'd all be just as employed, you would know, have just as many jobs, it's just they would be 20 hour jobs instead of 40 hour jobs. So, you know, the, if we, if we find it important to make sure that everyone actually can have like a job. And, you know, and we also find it important that that there's a lot of stuff that we're doing that don't necessarily need to be doing, and that, um, that machines can do. And, um, you know, that we can get done otherwise, then let's actually, you know, shift gears and, and let's focus on like actually having more time. And I, I think that's something that we've lost. Um, you know, the labor movement used to be fighting for, you know, shorter work weeks um, for a long time, historically. You know, it, it was normal that we had 60 hour weeks and, and then we switched, you know, to 50, we went down to 40 and we just kind of like stuck at 40. And I think it's important that as part of this kind of this degrowth kind of movement that we re-embrace that, you know, we should be saying, and, and we're actually learning that right now too, is, uh, you know, that we, we are able to accomplish more with less. And so, you know, if we, if we really want to get out of this in, in, in the right direction, then not only should we get basic income as part of this, but, you know, let's go back to work and, and let's be like, well, let's do four days instead of five. Uh, it turns out that we didn't need to be doing that fifth day. We could be just as productive as we were, um, but with four days working eight hours a day and no need to reduce incomes there either because we we just didn't need to be doing that. And so as we, if we start fighting again for those lower, shorter weeks, then, you know, that's just this important in order to, to actually pull back from, um, like, I kind of like think of this as like an engine kind of analogy where we're right now, we're like on the freeway and we're on, we're on third gear. And so like, you know, we're redlining, uh, to, to be going at like 50 miles an hour or something on the freeway. And if we just shifted into fifth gear, then our, RPMs would shift dramatically downwards and we could actually be going even faster than we were, but burning less fuel. And so that's kind of, what I think of it right now, like when it, in the kind of a fossil fuel analogy is we're just burning so much fuel that is entirely unnecessary because we're in the wrong gear. And part of it is a mental space. Like we're not mentally in the right gear. We're, we're focused so much on, on work and like the value of, of work and like, Oh, how great it is that I work 60 hours a week or 70 hours a week or 80 hours a week. You know, where's the Pride value? In, yeah. yeah. Like where's the value in actually saying, yeah, I actually only work 20 hours this week. I got everything done. I wanted to get done. Um, but I also enjoy time with my family and friends. I was able to work on some hobbies that are important to me, like this kind of thing. Um, so I, I, I think that, that, so much of this is this is we need to think differently about work itself and you know another example of this like 
know, wastefulness uh, of, of um, official employment versus thinking about work differently is thinking about, uh, say, care work. So right now you could have two care workers and they're being paid, uh, say, 50K each or something to watch each other's kids. And so every day, you know, they, they get up, they say goodbye to their kids and they drive a few miles. Um, you know, it, maybe it takes like an hour to get there or something because traffic is really bad and everyone else is driving there. And they spend like the whole day at this other place looking after someone who isn't their kid. And then they drive back at the end of the day and then they come back to, the, to their own kid. And so GDP recognizes that, you know, that, that's great. That's two jobs that exist and, and that's great for, for taxes. They're paying taxes on that. And that's great for everyone else seems to recognize that as important work, like, Oh, congrats. You have a job. You're doing something important. Um, and so that's all great. Uh, but then if they have a basic income and they can actually have the choice to stay home and, and watch their own kids and raise their own kids and do that care work for free voluntarily, then suddenly GDP doesn't see that. Uh, the rest of society see, doesn't see that. And they say, oh, that's not an actual job. That's not actual work. You're just watching your own kid. Even though obviously it was work in the other situation, watching someone else's kid. So if we can, we, if we can start to see the unpaid work and the volunteering as like valuable too, then we can get away from forcing people into these situations that are entirely wasteful um, from this uh, other aspect too, as far as consumption wise goes. Like we're, there's no reason to drive around everywhere so much um, if we can do that important work at home instead of being you know, forced to do this as far as like, you know, wage labor goes. So I think that's part of it too. Yeah, I think the current system, and I would love your thoughts on this, I think the current system really promotes a lot of individuality. When you were talking about care work just now, you know, my friend who's in her 30s, she was like, every, right now, there's some, we can always buy something, like I can buy a service, or I can buy a product, and I can buy childcare, and it, it kind of strips you away from your community, so yeah. if there are four mothers in a, or four parents in a, in a community, yeah. Why is it that we can't cooperate and, you know, one day you take care of two kids and the next day I'll take care of it. And it's like, and especially in a time of crisis, you not only know your neighbors, but there's already something, a mechanism in place to lean on rather than what we're trying to do now. Knee jerk reactions from like getting to know my neighbors via my balcony when we come out and we cheer for healthcare workers, you know, but there would have been a, there would have been a community in place anyways. So yeah. do you think that, do you think that when we give power back to people, we'll be able to build on the idea of collectivism, which is what we kind of need if we, you know, together want to shift the climate movement? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and I think that's a great example. And, I, and I've used that example before even uh, as well as, as if you enable these new forms of work and we recognize it, then yeah, that's another, that's even another feature of like a four day week too, is if you have that extra day, then, you know, you can alternate that with other people. Um, if you, if you're able to, um, oh, as like another example too, like, People will say, "Oh, like a thousand dollars per month per person is is too low." Um, but if you have, like, if you're talking about that kind of uh, amount, but if you have five people, then that's five thousand dollars per month, and it really does make these living situations much more uh, doable. And you see that these are kind of normal situations in like the Nordic nations and more like Europe, where people are like there's like these small communities of people living together. Um, and so, yeah, that makes it so much more possible. And then an outcome of that too is, yeah, they're all in the same place. So now they can watch each other's kids and do that childcare um, together collectively in a way that, that, you know, we can't really do right now. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a great example. And, and also I, I see these in the experiments too. Like we, we do see increased um, community social cohesion in experiments uh, multiple experiments. As an example, um, one of the first things that um, that was the result of the uh, the India experiment into UBI was that people uh, in like the village combined their their incomes and and 
created like a, a rec center for the community. Um, and so then there were other community effects too, where, where people who were um, in, in, you know, different social strata um, who would not usually like mingle um, began actually to, to mingle together. And um, uh, in, in a different experiment, they found that uh, with, as a result of UBI, people were more likely to talk to each other uh, because it, it turns out that that people were 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 worried that if they like ran into to Joe, you know, down the street, uh, that Joe might ask them for money, and so like there's that that discomfort and like not like to, want to avoid those interactions. <laughs> so once you took that away, then people were like, "Oh, hey, Joe, how you doing?" And so you know that really helps community. So it, it's just it's a it's it's a funny kind of quick understanding of how like we this this lack of of basing this lack of basic economic security actually helps divide us you know we we avoid situations that have discomfort we don't want to be asked we're worried about ourselves um it, it is kind of it, it forces a kind of individuality kind of um onto us when we actually do have a natural inclination to like you know want to to be more social to work together um and that actually, yeah, that's, that's, um, that happens as a, as a result. Actually, another, um, another observed effect too, and this was in North Carolina in, um, uh, as a result of the Great Smoky Mountain Study of Youth that was um, looking at kids being raised in poverty when the local Cherokee Nation started providing dividends to um, the parents who were part of the Cherokee Nation. And it turns out that those kids in these families, um, they experienced like um, personality effects where part of those personality effects was a, a enhanced um, uh, desire or, or ability to work with other people. You know, there's the kind of increased kind of teamwork part of it. You're, you're more likely to work with others. And, and I think that the result of that is, you know, it's just from a healthier personality where they're, their families who would otherwise have been more insecure, more stressful, their parents are fighting. They have like, you know, worse home lives. Those were improved. They, they had healthier home lives. And as a result that, and in their, you know, interactions with other kids at school, then they were more able to actually work together mm -hmm. instead of like kind of being um, withheld and, and, you know, not wanting to work with others. So it's like you, you see these effects over and over again as far as this this kind of removal of barriers to community that happens um, with this, you know, say unconditional uh, existence. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like a lot of young people, um, at least, you know, in my surroundings, like I'm caught up in the gig economy and contract work and a lot of my peers are as well. And I was getting out the youth vote and in the Canadian federal election last year and consistently like the top five things among the top five things of concerns of young people. One of them was uh, working away from your community and precarious jobs. And I couldn't help but think that like, if you're spending four hours on the road, two hours to get to work and then two hours to get back. And if you have kids, yeah. even if you are living in a semi secure, secure uh, financial situation, like that still has, far-reaching effects because your kids are not getting that attention you're you're not able to have that bond going and you don't know how that's going to play out for future generations and how they're going to go on to interact with the world so like we may think that oh it's just like four hours on the road each day but you get home you're tired yeah when you mentioned that corporations respond to the consumer mm -hmm. and the way the way i'm thinking is that climate change cannot be mitigated in a silo it, we have to work together countries and you know citizens all over the world we all need to do our part and what i'm also seeing is that there is a sense there's an established sense of injustice that countries that did not contribute to where we are now are also going to be facing the brunt of it the most much like yeah. we're seeing in the pandemic so if let's say um, Canada adopts UBI, let's say Switzerland has another referendum, they go for it, maybe Scotland goes for it. 
but how and maybe like pockets of India also goes for it since you know in 2019 it's a big uh, rally around it let's say India also goes for it but how is it gonna work if supply chains are dirty and they're not being accounted for and cor- again I go back to corporations are not being held accountable for negative externalities for getting away with cheap labor in countries that have looser laws. So how are we supposed to get everyone on board if different countries have different laws and they may not be in a situation or they may not have the political will right now to give this kind of power to the people in the form of UBI? Yeah, I mean, obviously there there needs to be a in international, you know, consensus or at least, um, you know, working towards this, this, this mutual goal. And, um, you know, it's, it's each country needs to reduce their own the emissions, but um, we also need to be helping other countries reduce their emissions. So, um, you know, if, if a, in a developing country, um, you know, you know, they need electricity, and they're going to go for whatever is cheapest. And so, like, if China comes in and says, here's a, a super cheap coal plant, and that's the offer that they have, and no other country is offering anything, then, you know, they're going to take that, and, and that's not going to be good for the rest of us. So the rest of us have to recognize that and be like, okay, we see that coal plant, um, but we're going to actually give you some wind turbines and... Um, uh, solar panels and, you know, we're going to give you these other things that they're more expensive, but we're actually going to subsidize them for you. We're going to make sure that you can get them for cheap because we know that's in our best interest that you actually get this better source of energy than that. Mm. So that's something that we actually have to decide and work on. Um, so that actually, you know, we have to, you know, this, this America first kind of mentality that, you know, Trump is pushing, that's not going to work because by just looking at us in, in Trump has actually said this, like, Oh, look at how, you know, we have reduced our emissions. Look at how great we're doing, but it doesn't matter because we're all on the same planet. And so we have to make sure that, that everyone else, you know, is able to do that too. And and we can't blame them either for wanting to develop, for wanting to have electricity. We know how important that is. So, So we have to say, let's make sure they can afford it. And so those things go together as well. Um, because of, as far as affording electricity goes, um, it, it's it's not only the production of it that we need to like make cheaper, as in to like make sure that they can afford this more expensive um, this production plant, this productive source, um, but also we have to make sure that that help make sure that the that the customers can afford it. So you know that's in, in, within those countries, they too need to focus on you know, either subsidizing that, or I would prefer to use, you know, cash grants um, in order to make that more affordable. Uh, an example of this is actually in Iran. And so Iran was, was subsidizing its oil. Um, it was, you know, very cheap oil there. And so, you know, one of the results of that, that they disliked was like, let's say, you know, the wealthy people in their sports cars were just like filling up tanks and just like driving all around and just like burning up all this fuel. And so like they made the fuel cheaper in order to help the poor because they, they knew that, you know, cheaper fuel means lower costs of like food and, and everything due to reduced cost of transportation and, you know, all these things using heating oil to help for your house that costs less. So like it helps the poor, but it was disproportionately helping the rich because they were able to use so much more of it. It actually kind of incentivized that usage because it was so cheap. So the only way to get rid of that kind of subsidy without hurting the poor is to convert those subsidies into a cash program. So that's what they did. And they removed all those subsidies and they did a universal cash program um, where they offered people the ability to opt into this. And it, it was when it was first launched and, you know, they didn't expect everybody to sign up for this. It wasn't meant to be universal basic income. It was just a cash program from switching from subsidy to cash. And at first, uh, I, I believe right when it launched, it was around, I think, like 50 to 60% take up of the country. 
And then within months, it went up to 96%. So 96% of the country signed up for this cash amount. And yeah, some of it were using Why wouldn't it. they? <laughs> yeah, right. Like why, it, even if it's like a small amount, you're like, well, why not? Uh, so it ended up being effectively a, a basic income. And the result of this was exactly what you see from like a carbon tax. So is it effectively what it was? Is you can either make oil more expensive by applying an additional tax to it, or you can remove the subsidies, in which case it gets more expensive. Hmm. And either way, that money can go into a cash program. And that's what they did. And of course, you know, it reduced poverty and it even increased entrepreneurship and it reduced this, this usage at the top because it made it more expensive. So it was no longer disproportionately benefiting the top and they were more longer, you know, they were wasting less of it because it cost more. And so that's exactly what we want. And so we should, that's again, it's an important thing to do not only, um, you know, around the world to not only you know utilize Bogovian taxes but to recognize that why the hell are we still subsidizing subsidizing this stuff like we do not want to subsidize it and you know here we are right now and it's super cheap and I think it's crazy that I'm already seeing you know legislators in the U.S. talking about oh well, it's going to make sure and and subsidize you know the the oil industry after this because they're going to be you know they're in a tough place it's like no <laughs> you don't like, need to do that <laughs> right just do not get rid of the subsidies that we're doing that we need to get away from that um and we just you know got to make sure that that people are not negatively impacted by the removal of subsidies even in canada i think there was an oil lobby group that wrote a letter to the prime minister saying no we're going to be adversely affected by this can you please like ensure that we're protected coming out of this um, I'm not sure what the, what the result was, but like a little oh, bit of a, yeah, sorry. I'm just, before I forget, I was just wanted to ask you too, had, had, did you see Dark Waters yet? No, I haven't. It's, re it's really good. Uh, so Mark Ruffalo is, is like the star and it's about, um, you know, a, a lawyer who takes on a case that's, um, you know, it turns out that Dow Chemical was, um, putting like, vastly polluting, um, the U.S., and um, as in the manufacture of, of Teflon. And so it's all about like the discovery of this and the reactions of it. And um, so this was this, this where it was produced. It, it, I can't remember exactly, you know, where, where it was. Um, but this is like, you know, kind of a, a small town, like a rural area kind of thing. And um, I, I remember part of it was the when like the lawsuit was announced. Um, like the town was upset because this was like the major employer and, you know, people who get like the good jobs, they, that's where they get their, their, their good money from. And it really like feeds the town, the town's economy. And it's like the town itself was like pissed off, but they weren't angry at Dow. They were angry at the people for, you know, for suing Dow. And I, I think, you know, that ties into this as well, where uh, again, you know, we, we're on the wrong side because we're, we're looking to like the people who are providing the paychecks as being like, you know, necessary for our survival. And if we just made sure that that survival was off the table, then, you know, these instances where, where we're actually angry at the people polluting us, you know, it's, it's not there anymore. Why would we, you know, let's stop like being in the situation, this kind of abusive relationship where we're reliant on those who are hurting us. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought this up. I'm going to check it out because one of the like one of the most um, predominant debates in Canada, at least with regards to the fossil fuel oil industry, is that, for example, in the the West, they're so they're one of they're they're one of the largest producers of oil, and there's a lot of uh, fear around what's going to happen when this industry, which will shut down imminently what will happen to all these workers and and like Alberta and Saskatchewan they went one way in the federal election you know they went completely blue and I mean again I don't I, I understand where the workers are coming from because this is where their bread and butter comes from right you know so if tomorrow you say okay we have to shut you down but you're not providing them with, not, with any alternatives they're stuck between a rock and a hard place so in the short run nothing's going to compensate for like a 90 plus thousand salary a year. You know, that's, you know, even if you give them like $2,000 a month from UBI, that's not going to compensate for 
you know, the loaded paychecks that you get from being in the oil industry right now. But in the short run, what do you think governments can do? What do you think that the Canadian government can do on top of being transparent? Like you're not being real with the people. You're trying to coax both the oil industry and you're trying to be with the climate movement, but you can't. You have to pick a side and you can't have, you can't lock hands with both of them. So in the short run, what can we do to allay the fears of people who are caught, who are working in this industry? Yeah, no, I mean, it, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big challenge. It's, um, that's why it's, it's, it's more than like an economic case. Um, you know, we have right now where we, we see these jobs as being important because they pay a lot. And, um, and also like in a, in a high in, high inequality environment, then, you know, you're, you're judging yourself against other people, um, to a greater degree than you would in a, in a less unequal environment. So, I mean, that's part of it too, is that he's been asking ourselves, like, why is it that say earning six figures is, is so much more important than earning say, you know, $80,000 because, you know, we, we know from studies of happiness that once you hit like $80,000, then, <laughs> Each dollar you earn above that doesn't really increase your happiness much more. But because, you know, around like six figures, that's when like you hit this curve and there's just like massive inequality. And, you know, there's, you can feel poor earning a quarter of a million dollars, you know, compared to someone else earning, you know, half a million dollars and earning like a million dollars. And, <laughs> and then like the multimillionaires compared to the billionaires, you know, and like they're all looking at each other as been like, poor <laughs> and when this money is just like sat in panama probably i'm just like it, it's just it's an imagination after some point you know yeah yeah no it, it really is um so yeah the, the it's it's tough to look at this in the short term because it really is a long-term issue this is you know we have to reduce inequality uh, we have to think about work differently we have to um you know create better forms of say the pursuit of of meaning where you know we're we're not tied we don't think of it, it, it you know, right now let's say you know, like a in kentucky like a, a good job is the coal mining job that's that's the that's the one you're going to earn the most money in and so like because of that even though you know you have like massive instances of, of black lung and and so many people have died in the job um, throughout its hundreds of years of, of existence there, that it has like this, you know, respect um, because also the fact that it is the job that pays money. And so if you, if you have that job, then you have this, you know, you're, you're doing like the tough work and you have like the esteem and the community looks at you as, as being like a success. So it's we have to create like new forms of success where you know let's say um they can be just as successful or seen as more successful if like let's say they start up a a local business you know this is a a new mom and pop store kind of situation and uh, you know right now that's virtually impossible because again there's no customers. There's so many people without money. So people are just trying to survive. And so it's really hard to start something up like that. But actually we know that a lot of people do want to do that. Like people do have a natural inclination to want to do whatever work that they feel is important. And a lot of that is like lots of ideas for businesses. Lots of people want to either, you know, start up a restaurant or, or maybe like create their own, like, you know, clothes and, and uh, you know, there's so many ideas out there that people can do, and at the same time, as this like there's la this lack of of, of customers, um, you have you know like Amazon and stuff. You have this you have these ginormous kind of companies, and and part of that part of their success is the fact that they're so much cheaper. Like they, it's very efficient. You can. You know, this was what helped kill off the mom and pop stores is Walmart. And then, of course, Walmart started competing with Amazon. And so I think that part of this future, too, is, is enabling people to start up these businesses and enabling people as customers to choose those businesses that cost more. You know, and, and so people will have that opportunity. If you have enough money, then you can say, all right, is it, should I get this thing that I want from Amazon that's super cheap? And, you know, we'll be here in a couple of days 
or um, is it better to go to my local store and get something from there um, that I also like, and you can, even, can get it right now instead of waiting for a couple of days. But I also know that I'm helping my community, that the money is going into that. Um, so then again, this is like this mindset change. Uh, it, it's kind of going back to like, you know, made in America or like made locally kind of thing, but in like a real way, because you, you can't just tell people to buy local. Uh, that doesn't work. It's the same thing as you can't just tell people to buy, you know, like LED light bulbs or, or buy solar panels. Like the, the, there's a challenge there. There's an obstacle of not being able to afford these things. So again, this is why I think UBI is key is to make these things more affordable to like, you know, kind of kickstart these new options. And then when you have those new options, then you can start to pursue, you know, these, these higher forms of meaning in a more um, real way that is, you know, you can't do right now. And uh, I, I also just want to mention too, that part of this option is the pursuit of like unpaid work and volunteering in, in a way that's impossible now. Like you can't do these things unless yeah. let's say you're retired and that's why you see so much of this greater community engagement um, among seniors who are on social security because they effectively have a basic income and so they can actually be more engaged in these things. So if you offer that to the entire community across all ages, then suddenly you open up like as being referred to as like a gift economy kind of a situation. So you can do things for each other and you don't actually have to sell it. You know, you, I even see myself doing that. You know, I have crowdfunded my own base kingdom since 2016. And part of it is that I'm, you know, more able to actually just do things for free. Um, you know, I'm like, I'm not charging anything for this right now. I'm happy to do this for, for free. I consider this to be like, you know, <laughs> Scott valuable. Fenton's is not going to be here. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, so, you know, I enjoy doing this kind of thing and I, I enjoy doing a lot of things for free because I, I, it's, it's something that I consider it to be important. And so if you enable that, then suddenly, you know, let's say an artist can decide, do they want to, you know, create a painting and sell it, which is already like challenging right now. And a lot of artists are underpaid and, and it's very difficult to do that. And then if you have enough money uh, to survive, do you want to sell that on top of it, which is entirely, you can do that, or you can actually even just give it, you know, you can do things for free in a way that you can't do right now. And then you enter in this economy where, where, there's more of this sense of, of gifting instead of like an obligation. So instead of only doing something for someone, you know, if they do something in exchange, then you're able to say here, like I grew some asparagus and it took me, you know, a long time, a lot of effort. Um, but here in the community, I, I just want to share this with you. And then they themselves would do something and they would be far more likely to then also give to the community or to some to other people and saying, hey, you know, here's something that I did as well. And so they weren't asked to do it, but because they were gifted something first, then they feel that they want to return. And so I think that is another mechanism that UBI can really help with is that we shift from like, we only do things for other people, they do things for us, to I'm enabled because other people enabled me to through this that I can do things for other people and then they will feel that they want to do something in return. It just seems so interesting that we have spent decades coming to where we are now only to the necessity almost is to go back to the way we used to live where, you know, there yeah. was respect for elders and, you know, there wasn't anything like, oh, this person is 90 now and we need to give this human life support. So we're just going to, you're not this you're not that valuable <laughs> right. right now to our society. Right. So, you know, it's like, it's so interesting that industrialization and technology and, you know, we've just, we've come so far from who we used to be. And now we almost have to find our way back. Yeah. And I think even, I think that there's, you know, I, a, a, a natural kind of human behavior there. And like, you know, I, I, I kind of dislike using that, that term um, because so much of what's natural is according to our environment. Um, but I do feel like as human beings that, that there is something biological there, kind of hard-coded that we do want to form communities. The social bonds are important to us. And, 100%. And we, you know, we, there, 
like when it comes to like um, physiological reactions to like stress, we know that um, like a key thing is that, you know, if you have those strong community bonds, if you have strong social bonds, then, you know, you are far less likely to, to be depressed. You know, you're less likely to commit suicide. You know, like it's really important for us to have those bonds. So yeah, like through all of like human history, they were there. And then we created what was entirely unnatural, which was a private property system where we, you know, roped the land off and we said, no, you can't use this. This is mine. And like that helped, you know, create this industrialization. You know, we were able to, to utilize this system to, to accomplish so much more. But at the same time, we actually made our existences basically like worse off for at least for a certain amount of people. You know, you could argue that so many people's lives improved and they did. Um, but in a lot of cases, there are people who are worse off than if they would have existed, you know, in the previous state. And so that was even Thomas Paine's argument over 200 years ago was that part of civilization, like, yeah, we created it and it made people better, but it did make people worse. And so mm. we have to like compensate for that by making sure that, that we essentially pay that those who own resources pay a ground rent on those resources. And then those go back to everybody as their natural inheritance. And I think that, that this is like a truth that has been with us for a long time and hopefully due to things like the pandemic now and, and automation and climate change, we can get back to this and, and use technology to actually enable us to, yeah, go back to the, these increased social cohesion and focus on community that we got away from. What do you think is different about this pandemic in terms of other crises that we've been through in the past because we are talking about UBI a lot and I think one of the things that I've consistently heard is that in 2008 there wasn't an alternative idea lying around to be picked up and that's why we went back to business as usual in fact we went down the neoliberal road even faster like we were in fifth gear to use your analogy um so what do you think is different about this pandemic and this crisis if at all to use the political will to create a quote-unquote new world order yeah yeah so the the last crisis was definitely a a big uh, boost for basic income you know because it wasn't talked about then but yeah it, it did people did start talking about it a lot more and it was talking about inequality and it was just you know it was just such a naked example of how like when things got bad, where did the help go? You know, we, we didn't bail out the people. We, we bailed out the top and we increased inequality as a result, which was already a problem. And so, yeah, here we are. And I mean, I am just, I, just so angry to see us going down the same road. Like I really thought that, that people would be, just would not accept that, that it would be absolutely unacceptable to, do the same thing as we did last time. And yet here we are, the Fed has created $6 trillion just in the last you know, couple of months. And where has that gone? It's gone to asset purchases of you know, these same uh, uh, mortgage-backed securities that was a part of the first one. And they did this in advance this time. You know, they didn't wait until like, these things started crashing because people were no longer able to pay like, their rent and mortgages. They bought them in advance because they knew that that was going to be, you know, an issue. Instead of going, oh, let's make sure people can pay their rent and mortgages, so that's not an issue. They immediately to the saving the securities in order to to increase the, you know, maintain the wealth of the the rich. And it's just it it just blows my mind. And I hope that that we're going to reach a point where it's just unacceptable. And, and that's different this time is that, of course, there are more people unemployed this time than last time. And, you know, this is, these people are having to go through the system that is not designed for, you know, human well-being. It's designed to piss people off. <laughs> you know? yeah. like, if you Make have to... In the face. Yeah, if you have to, you know, stand in lines, um, you know, these food bank lines are, are 10,000, you know, there's thousands of cars lined up for food banks and, and people are, are calling every day 
uh, to get unemployment. And then even if they get they're qualified and they sign up all the documents and stuff, then they still don't get the, the check and they're still waiting to know like, when are they going to get the check? And so like this whole system is, is like a, it's like a mass torture device or something of some kind. And it, it just feel like it, it has to hit a breaking point. And we feel that it's like, we're already seeing that breaking point. Um, but it's, it's, some of it's in the wrong direction, you know, it, it's been politicized and now people are like fighting to go back to work in order to earn an income instead of demanding that if the fact that they were ordered to stay home, that they should have had an income. Um, and so like, you've got this kind of growth, um, at least on the, in the Democrats of like, um, of cat direct cash assistance, uh, for recurring to get us through this. And that's exactly what we need. But then we're also seeing this politicization and we're seeing the Republicans going, Oh no, just go back to work and, you know, start earning those incomes through, through your employment and at the cost of our health and the fact that it's not going to work anyways. Like, this is what bothers me so much too about those who are fighting against this right now is that if you reopen things and behavior has changed, you know, who cares if you open up a restaurant and now 80% of the people who would have gone there don't go there. People Uh, are not going to go like we're capable of making our own decisions. And just because you said, okay, go out doesn't mean that I'm going to go out. Right. And there's a Kickstarter feature to it too. So there's the mental blocks of, I don't want to go there. Like I, I don't demand that service. I don't want it. But then there's also the lack of income as in you would want to, if you, if you were one of those people who wanted to go, but you can't afford it because you don't have money. So your money, yeah, your money needs to be their income in order to be other people's income to be, you know, customers elsewhere. And so as long as there's that lack of money, then is this is going to be a just ridiculously slow recovery and as this ridiculously low recovery happens then automation makes more and more sense and you've got all these people unemployed and you know this belief that they're going to go back to work uh, just if you flip the economy and even if you you know even if they have the money to do that then we know that there's even more reason to automate right now. You know, this helps supply chains, uh, makes them more resilient, enables them to keep going when people are sick. And we're already thinking about, well, now that we've experienced this once, then, you know, it could happen again. There, there's absolutely nothing stopping another virus from even coming out, like, right now. Like, we mm-hmm. could have another entirely separate pandemic. Um, so we have to design our systems to actually recognize that. And so this means because robots don't get sick, that we have to invest in these things um, whenever we can. So there's, uh, we want to increase our productivity using the technology we have available. And because of that, and we're already seeing this too, like there was a survey done uh, across 40 countries of uh, employers and, and what they were doing and over 40% were increasing their investments in automation. Um, so we can expect a lot more of it. And that only again ties into this further. So not only is behavior changed and not only do people have less income to be customers, but then now there's more machines doing the work of these workers that they, that they just had those jobs. And so all of this feeds into each other and it it just seems like it has to reach a breaking point this time around where the, this breaking point did not exist before uh, because automation is only going to increase and it's going to be so much more worse than last time that I just hope that even the Republicans who are pro small business, so they say they're pro small business, they're pro capitalism, you know, they're pro people having money to spend in markets, get the money to people to spend in markets. Like, yeah, <laughs> other, otherwise we're, we're screwed. And so, yeah, I, I just, I hope that, that we realize that in time. It just seems that America's in more of a, doom gloom scenario definitely than Canada because I was listening to rising and they said that 40% of small businesses are going to shut down after this. And it's like, like what you said, if there's no money to circulate, there's no disposable income, then how are like the whole, the economy is a, is like a system of giving exchanging money. And if there is nothing to exchange, then, you know, how are we even going to build anything back up? Yeah. So I think I think just the last thing that I want to ask you, it's something that I heard from you. I was listening to your podcast on uh, the reason that the that the UBI experiment in Ontario was repealed 
by Doug Ford was because he saw because he he saw that it was getting successful. Yeah. Um, I think we've put to rest all the ifs and buts of UBI, the outlier argument, the laziness, the tax, this and that. Like I think we've put that to rest. And if anyone has any questions, you know, I'll put a link to your FAQ page. Please go read that. <laughs> much all answers are there. I just ask about like if it is successful, even if politicians are all about the power, they want to get another term. Like, doesn't it seem logical, intuitive that they would, that they would bend, bend the knee and put this policy in place that gives people the money, but also essentially helps them look good and they get, they get power. Is, is that too simplistic? Uh, I mean, it, it should be the case. Like it, 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 I think it really says a lot about politicians as to like where their priorities are. Um, because yeah, if you represent the people and you know, the, the other ones voting for you, then obviously you should be supportive of policies that increase their likelihood to vote for you. Um, but then of course, money is such a, a central part of politics. And where does the money come from? It's not coming from the people who vote for you. It comes from the people who are you know, lobbyists or paying lobbyists who are you know, the giant corporations, the, the rich. And so, that's where the status quo is. And so people who are, have an inherent interest in the status quo, they do not want to change that at all. The way things are, are working for them. And so they don't want to change things. So they are more likely, if, if you're a representative and, and you're you know, being funded by interests who want to maintain the status quo, then you better maintain the status quo. Uh, if you start supporting something that's that's different, then you will lose your funding, and that funding will even go into competitors who will be for the status quo. So there's this 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 fight, this you know social political war between those you know the grassroots, the people, um, the actual people and the voters versus those who who are essentially paying for these for the government to work for them. And that's the big challenge. Like we have to, we, we as a people have to, to put the representative's feet to the fire because it always comes down to us. Like sure, the, the moneyed interests may want us to vote in a certain way, but it always comes down to our vote. Like they, they don't get to control things, it's us. So we, we have, have long had a problem with, with voting against our own interests because you know we believe certain lies, certain... Uh, fears and concerns and and you know part of that too is is you know if you're if you're just scratching by if you're worried about daily survival you know then you know you're less likely to be well informed you are you know you don't have that time um, or mental space or ability to to read up on issues to um, you know to engage even with your representatives, to, to call them up, to write them. Um, you know, it's just all that's more difficult. It's just, it's, 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 it's like in a different world. Uh, that's even why we see a big difference between, um, you know, voting uh, between those who, um, you know, earn a lot versus those who don't, you know. Mm-hmm. If it's, it's also like the wage concerns. If you're barely getting by and you have like a minimum wage job, um, and it's it's the time to vote, and of course you know you're living in a place maybe where um, you know there's no voting holiday. Uh, it's voting. It's during a weekday, and uh, maybe there's a long line involved. So you're like, no, I just can't. Like I don't have the time. I don't want to be late for work. Um, I just can't do this. You know, but it doesn't matter because other people are going to vote for, and it'll be fine. But it's not fine. <laughs> Like you have to be able to vote. So yeah, We're it all comes down to us. In America. We're seeing that firsthand right now. Yeah. yeah. It, it, here we are. It's, it's, it's disgusting that even um, that you see, that you see politicians, you know, actually saying, um, you know, let's prevent people from voting at home. You know, let's, let's make them stand in line and potentially die as a result. Like this is just disgusting that anyone would ever, say that you know it should be a, a possibly fatal uh, to vote instead of voting at home and and why because out of a fear that that there's going to be fraud 
even though you know the cases of fraud from mail-in voting are, are less than like 10 instances per year. It's all just, it's so blatant that they're using this as a means of, of you know, of the vote coming out for them. If, if fewer people vote, then the result is oriented towards, you know, the status quo and the powered interests. And if more people vote, then it's not in their interests. So mm -hmm. again, that's the same kind of thing. It, it, it comes down to us. We have to fight for this by, you know, making sure that, that we do vote and that we vote for the people who actually represent us instead of represent, you know, the status quo and, and the elite. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. I think it's just helpful to remember that those guys are public servants and yeah. the democracy belongs to us. So thank you so much for all the work that you are doing to promote UBI. And I mean, the hope is that in among all the ideas lying around, this one gets picked up this time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in, in the case of the U.S. too, I hope we pick up universal health care as oh. well. <laughs> <laughs> for your sake, for, yeah, I really hope so. You guys are... Yeah, you guys are quite in the dumps. I hate that. So. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, thanks so much, Scott. Thanks for taking the time out to talk to me. Yeah, no, happy to help. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to yet another episode on UBI. I'm honestly so excited about UBI at the moment because I really think it's one of those policies, few policies that really comes at a lot of issues in one go. For for those of you who do follow conversations on UBI, then you'll know that Scott Santons literally is the guy on the subject. So as you can imagine, I was very excited to have him on board. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. And as usual, do follow, share, comment, let's exchange thoughts. And if you're listening to this, and if you have a moment to spare, it would be excellent, amazing, if you could just Go to Apple and leave a comment or a star or two or three because it will help me out. And as I've been leaving you nowadays, I hope you're washing your hands and not touching your faces. You don't need to be employed to get employee-level vision coverage. If you're retiring soon and looking for a way to continue caring for your eyes, get a VSP individual vision plan at vspdirect.com.